Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Friday, May 20th. It's a freaky free-for-all Friday. I believe I'm being joined by both John and Joel today, so we can certainly focus on fuel economy and trucking technology and efficiency as well. But you can throw in whatever you want. It's Friday And we're going to get to those calls here in just a little bit. So line them up, 855-950-3835. I see we've got Joel on the line. I think we're waiting on John right now. We'll hear from those guys in just a couple minutes. And, of course, we want to hear from you as well. Phone lines are open. If you dial right now, I promise you'll get a line. You want to jump in quick? I think today's going to go fast. One thing I hate to talk about the vaccine all the time, but I'm going to because there is a, uh, and I'm going to make this quick and I'll probably work more on this or do a, uh, a longer show on this um, later next week. Oh, you know what? I just saw a message. Joel can call in for about 30 minutes. So rather than do my open, I'm going to bring Joel in so we don't miss any time with him. And then, uh, Maybe I'll do that later. Joel, welcome. Hey, welcome. Actually, that was John that can be around for 30 minutes. I'm, I'm good for the full duration. <laughs> okay, I'm going to hang up on you then and come back to you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When we do get John, we need to get him in right away so he can, he can, uh, he can talk about what he's got going on. But uh, I've got a ton of things happening. Um we're working on the um, the uh, speed limiter issue as alpha drivers, and I'm working on you know just some regular truck technology as well that revolves around issues related to the speed limiter. Um, doing a lot of things in regards to safety and maintaining that distance or safety gap between the vehicle in front of you and and uh, different ways to approach this. And ultimately, I think that is the, the true solution. Um, I, I don't think speed limiters are a good idea. Uh, and you know, uniform speed limits aren't necessarily the answer either. Uh, vehicles are just as dangerous running at a uniform speed if they don't have the proper safety gap. And if we do have a speed differential, that gap between you and the next vehicle in front of you becomes critical to maintain safety. So, um, in my opinion, that is the answer. We do have some technology today that wasn't available in the past that we can, you know, adapt and put on trucks to uh, achieve a a high level of, what do we want to say, safety gap awareness. And uh, I, I think that's what the industry needs. That and, you know, reforming the, the pay, like we talked about before, you know, adding some time value to a driver's pay. So they are rewarded for making the right decision and not rewarded for taking risk. Exactly. Hey, John's there. I'm going to bring him in. Uh, John, we found out you only have 30 minutes. So Joel and I are going to go grab some coffee. You can talk for 30 minutes and then we'll, uh, we'll follow up. I'll bore everybody with racing stories of my past few weeks. But yeah, it's uh, crazy. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, glad to be here, guys. I'm sorry I missed last week, and I am definitely free next week. I've got nothing planned for the holiday weekend, so I'll, I'll be home and, and in the office on Friday for sure. Excellent. So, Good. Um, All right. Um, crazy, crazy deal here. I got, uh, we won the race in Mid-Ohio last week, which was great. Um, fantastic effort by the team. Uh, drivers did a great job. We were actually running one, two. Uh, the other team car was in second for most of the race, and uh, he, the driver made a little mistake in turn nine and spun the thing around and got going again and still finished fifth, but uh, wasn't uh, should have been a one-two. Wow! So great, great weekend. That happens, and then in my yeah, and I got home Monday, and my phone was ringing for other people wanting to hire me, so that was good. I mean, it's being a uh, shall we say a fly-in consultant. Um, there are other names for it too, but, uh, yeah, my, my, you know, it's an interesting business in that your stock goes up immediately when you start winning races. And yeah, I'm, I'm here with a Ferrari challenge team right now. Never touched one of these things before. And I've got my cars at the front of the front of the field right now. So it's good. Um, hey, yeah, you, a lot of, a lot of money being spent here. Well, there you go. There you go. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, one thing real quick, though, we should probably come up with a name other than consultant. You know the definition of a consultant, right? No, I don't. Oh, it's, uh, it's a guy who knows 30 ways to make love to a woman but doesn't know any women. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not me. <laughs> I might know too many women, as, we, as we've discussed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so now you, now you got me all sidetracked. I had a bunch of really intelligent comments I was going to make about Joel's stuff, and now I, I lost my train of thought. Um, um, the, the speed limiting stuff. That, that's yeah, that's an interesting topic. Yeah, it is. So hey, no. now th th that reminded me. So there is a book okay. out there called Traffic. I read it several years ago, and it kind of is like a myth-busting book about all the things we think are correct about traffic and how it flows and what works and what doesn't. They tried to take on that whole you know, merging thing into a construction? Is it better if everybody merges early or late? Or, and even though that was the whole point of the book, I'm not really sure they solved that one um, completely, but they talked about like metering ramps. Does that really work? The one that was surprising, um, and I'm bringing this up because sometimes what we think is going to work is the exact opposite. Speed bumps in many cases actually cause people to go faster. They actually speed up in between the speed bumps and then slow down just to go over the speed bump. Somehow that does not surprise me. So I, I got thinking. I, I got thinking about the speed differential thing. And I, I've never been completely convinced that having a speed differential is really that bad of a thing. And it, what if it's one of those things that's the opposite? Think about this. If everybody can go 70, it means they're all really going 75 because they know they can get five miles over without getting a ticket. And it seems to me like that's when you get these clusters that I try to stay away from. Everybody's all bunched up. They're using both lanes. And it's it, it just to me, that seems like a mess. They're all traveling at the same speed. 
I'm usually the speed differential. I'm the one screwing everything up because I'm driving 57 or 60. Even in my car, I usually don't even do the speed limit. But it it keeps things separate. Yeah. Is it really that yeah. bad that we have a speed differential? And if it is bad, how are you ever going to solve that? You're always going, especially if you have 80 mile an hour speed limits, you always have somebody who's going to feel a whole lot more comfortable at 65 and doesn't want to drive that fast. Yeah, yeah, you're you're never going to solve that problem. Um, I, to me, it's almost kind of a I don't want to say a made up thing to drive an agenda, but the whole speed differential thing, in my opinion, is nonsense. I, I think we look at aviation and what what does an air traffic controller do? He's managing space. Regardless of the speed, they're always managing space between aircraft. Same thing should apply to the trucks on the road. We need to do a better job at managing space. And it's, it's difficult for a driver um, because when we have varying speed limits, typically as a driver, we, we kind of fix a distance in between me and the next vehicle. And we, we, we kind of hold that consistent distance regardless of the speed we're going. So when you get tools like I have, like the driver eye that actually can measure that gap as your speed fluctuates, you're kind of surprised, even though you're holding the same gap, your, your, your seconds between that vehicle decreases and then it starts to tick off points against you. And today with the radar and the trucks, we should have a, gauge just like a speedometer uh, or or the tachometer uh, a prominent gauge in the dash that shows you how many seconds you are from the vehicle in front of you um i think that would be a, a far better solution than trying to mandate a blanket speed that works across the entire country yeah and you know that the, we have a an association in this industry that has fought against uh, speed differentials forever and they claim and and here's the thing they claim it's not safe okay i get that and if safety is your real concern if you're fighting over this because safety is that important to you then why are you fighting to get trucks to go 80 miles an hour to fix the differential shouldn't you be fighting to have those 80 mile an hour speed limits reduced back to 65 for everybody if it's about safety, there's not an argument you're, that you're could exactly ever right. be made that going faster makes anybody safer. Uh, yeah, you're you're exactly right. This to me is just kind of a made up thing to push an agenda to to keep their members fired up. Um, it's all about the distance between you and the next vehicle, regardless of speed. You have to have that gap. It's even actually the distance is even bigger at 75 or 80, and it yeah. becomes much more difficult to drive in a safe fashion at those higher speeds if you're going to be safe. And so the argument that all trucks going 70 or 75 to me is just ridiculous on its face. Yeah, yeah. I, it, the, if we if we look at the statistics, the number one cause of accidents is always speed, and then it's speed and following distance, which go hand in hand. And if that's the number one reason for accidents and we're concerned about safety, we wouldn't be fighting to get that, you know, trucks at 80 miles an hour. And you know what? The other thing, the other point I wanted to make, did you see the report that came out this week? I was just trying to find it again. Um, The safety record for trucking right now is awful. We just had a horrible year. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely saw that, and and, and this this really kind of drives home the point that um, I am not for a government mandated speed limit across the country. I, I, you leave Elko, Nevada, heading to Salt Lake City, there is no point in driving sixty mile an hour. Um, but by the same token, you know, in, in New England, it, it starts to make some sense. So I think it's all about leveraging today's technology in order to be able to maintain gap a little bit better, the safety gap. I also think that we could do something with a backwards looking radar on trailers and maybe have the brake lights start to strobe on the trailer. If somebody's closing that gap too fast or getting too close to your trailer, everybody's worried about running into the back of you. That would be a relatively easy problem to, to have a warning device that, you know, alerts a driver that may not be paying attention that you're getting too close to me. I, I want my warning device on the back of my vehicle to be a paintball gun I can activate from the steering wheel. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I'll throw a little physics at this for you. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's relativity, not Einstein stuff, but uh, I struggle with this with race car drivers, right? They always think they're catching the car in front of them in the slow turn that they're in, but they don't realize the cars are separated by time and not distance. And so you travel a shorter distance <clears throat> in the same amount of time at less speed. So you get this perception <laughs> that that you're you're closing in on somebody, right? Like you're you're faster than them. I was really close to them in the turn, and then when we got to the straight, it was well, not really. So that distance traveled at a speed is obviously greater at a higher speed. So the gap increases and decreases, even if you're going the same speed and slow down at the same rate. At the same time, you're going to get closer to the vehicle in front of you, and people don't realize that. It's 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 an interesting you know problem, but uh, it, it really happens. So well, and 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 an easily solved problem by having that radar on the front of the truck that shows in time the gap in front of you, not, not in, not necessarily in distance, but in time, we're always told it, it's so many seconds is a safe distance. I've been told it's anything over four seconds and, and you're, you're in the good safety zone. Some people think it's five. Some people think it's eight. It's virtually impossible for a driver to look and tell you how many seconds that vehicle's in front of you without assistance from radar. And just to, right. just to John's point, when you do have varying speed limits in the past, it was very difficult for a driver to know if they're maintaining the correct gap with forward looking radar and possibly backward looking radar on the trailer. We completely solve this problem. We completely get rid of the need for any type of speed limiter and we could actually make faster trucks much safer. Although I think drivers will be shocked at the distances that they need to have between them and the next vehicle in order to maintain that, that safety. So, um, we can definitely leverage today's technology, uh, to solve a lot of the problems we've been dealing with, quite frankly, since 1938. I mean, we've been dealing with this nonsense and we have the technology today to fix these problems once and for all. I agree. Hey, John. But Joel, there you go again. Answering every question with technology. Don't you realize a lot of people don't like technology? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is what it is. You, you know what I mean. It, it just simply. You know, is you're, you're, not, you're not. You're not going to put that. You're not going to put that on your old big cam powered Pete, man. I'm sorry. It's not going to well, happen. Well, and the, you know what? The, the, there you kind of revert to. 
if you have a new truck and you have the technology, you can run the speed limit. If you want to have an older truck, you're just simply going to have to be speed limited in that instance. Um, you know, older trucks without the technology. I, I mean, look, I, I drove trucks way back in the day when we still had bias ply tires and you were kind of afraid to run those things up to a certain speed because you thought the tire would blow out or the brakes weren't quite as good as they are today. And you think you're going to plow somebody over. So the equipment itself forced you to slow down. Yeah. Stopping on bias ply tires is not a fun thing either. Yeah. It's a, never, it's a, never was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, John, I, I remember yeah. trying to explain something to my son once we were in the car, and I, I just, I, I think it has a lot to do with what you were just t- talking about, the time distance thing. He, and I don't even remember how it came up, but he was talking about a car in front of us, and we're, you know, traveling on the interstate, and he said, well, that car has to be going faster than we are. And I, I said, what? And he said, well, they have to be going faster than we are. They're ahead of us. <laughs> and I thought, okay, how well, do I explain At this some point, point they did. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think the other important part of this, this entire thing um, as well is, you know, getting rid of the overtime exemption and, and getting some time value uh, attached to the employee drivers. So if we do implement technology like this, um, they get paid for doing the right thing instead of getting rewarded for taking risk. That It's just completely backwards. Um, you know, there's a lot more to this economically when you start to dig into it. That's been sort of shocking to me. Um, since deregulation in, in 19, what, 79, 80, uh, the transportation industry has become 42% more efficient. It's really drove our, our wages have really suffered as drivers. They, they haven't kept pace with the efficiency gains in transportation. And what this has really, in my opinion, is enabled to happen is it allows the Chinese to ship all these cheap goods into ports, and then we can distribute them all over the country dirt cheap because we are so efficient and the drivers have kind of, you know, bared the brunt of that burden um, in terms of wages. And it's just, it's given rise to all these big box stores. It's, it's put all the mom and pop people out of business. It's decimated our local manufacturing. Um, and what local manufacturing we do have left, it's become very centralized. So when that factory goes down, now we've got supply chain issues. It's, it's problematic to have this ultra efficient productivity driven transportation system where we're really taking the driver's wages kind of out of the loop and, and the drivers take it on the chin. But Joel, you forget all that matters is the big corporations profits. If it's more profitable to have that something made and then we move it super efficiently once it gets here, hey. someone's dividends went up that quarter and the stock market does well. And everybody thinks that the economy is good because the stock market's doing well. And it's a bunch of bullshit as you, you said a lot last week from what I saw on social media. Uh, well, and where we can really point this out, our own history from 1938 to 1979 under heavy regulations, we done quite well. The economy done well. The middle class was vibrant and strong. Truck drivers' wages were very strong. 
in relationship to everybody else's wages. And, you know, it was a little more expensive to ship goods around, but we were able to, you know, maintain a cohesiveness in our domestic manufacturing base. Now it's so cheap to move stuff. Just bring her in from China, put everybody out of work, but we got, we've got 39 cent widgets. Part of it. So what you don't realize about that era, that 38 to 70, whatever era is like the, the rest of the industrialized world was still recovering from world war two and they were blown up and we didn't have to compete with anybody, you know? And it, so that was a whole nother era that unless we blow up the rest of the world again, somehow and have to spend another 20 years recovering. I don't know that it's going to be repeatable. Hey, there's a, there's so. another factor here. I'm a little, I, I just got thinking about this. So I, I don't remember when it was, but the last time we went over $4 a gallon in fuel and it stayed there for a while. Uh, and it wasn't there that long and it, it wasn't as bad as what we're going through right now, but it was enough that that high fuel price in our country was enough that even companies like Walmart started to bring man, they started to use suppliers closer and local and in the U S there was a big push for that. I remember a lot of companies were doing it. So I'm wondering what's different this time. All the numbers that they used last time to say it makes more sense to use suppliers, you know, closer to where we are and more local and smaller. They all the same numbers they used to say that made sense. All those numbers are worse now. And yet nobody's talking about that this time. Yeah. Probably because they don't exist anymore. Well, that could be. But we're, we're seeing that already, Kevin, in the food. Remember, I told you about my local grocery store that has grass-fed local beef for two bucks cheaper a pound than the stuff that they ship in. Yeah, so right. I think it's happening. Uh, you I know, hope it keeps if, happening. If Giant Eagle is now selling local, if, if Giant Eagle is now selling local, which is our, our chain here around Pittsburgh, um, is now selling local beef, that's a good thing. It is. And I think you're starting to see it pop up in a lot of places. And if we can start eating locally again, I mean, not, not that I don't want to see moving food around, you know, leave the trucking industry, but it really doesn't need to be there. We, we can all eat locally and, and be healthier for it. And, you know, that'll, that'll, that'll burn less fuel getting, getting food moved around. That's for sure. Yeah. And you're, you're not so dependent on just a couple of these giant processing and distribution centers that, like Joel just said, we have one problem, they go down, and one, one factory with the, let's just talk about what's current, the baby formula crisis, which is just disgusting to me that we even have to talk about this. How this happened is, I, I can't even fathom, but you know, we, we've got the same thing going on. One plant produced 43% of the formula we use in this country. And now that plant's sitting there not doing anything, and we have babies in the hospital over this already. Yeah, this is a this is a huge problem. I I look at the at the meatpacking industry. um, You know, obviously the bull haulers they all have that reputation. They they run outlaw. They want exemptions from all the rules in order that they can supply these distant meatpacking plants from the farm and and a lot of times they get special consideration they're hauling livestock all this stuff in actuality those guys need to be slowed down the true cost needs to be understood to move this stuff safely and then i'll bet you that we don't move cattle 
5,000 miles to a meat packing plant or whatever the distance is, you know, we, we start to do things more locally and, and we start hey. to redevelop that manufacturing base that, that America has always had in the past. Hey, I'm going to jump in there because I, I know of specific government regulation, just one, but there's dozens of them around the meat packing industry. Uh, Joel Salatin has a really good book on this. I, I think it might be his book uh, titled Folks, This Ain't Normal. Um, it's one of his books where he talks pretty extensively about the meat packing industry because he's tried for years uh, to get it to become more local and smaller and not just these giant processing plants. But he went through just, just some government regulation. And here's just one that stuck in my head. There was a bunch of stuff like this. So, And I don't know if this is still true. I'd have to go look, but it was at the time when he wrote the book. So there was a regulation, or, or maybe still be, um, that the meat processing plant had to have a separate bathroom that was only for the FDA inspector. Now, it sounds like a absolutely ridiculous rule, but I think I probably know how it came about, and it's not as ridiculous as you might think, although it still is. Um, use the damn bathroom that's there for everybody else. But a lot of the giant meatpacking plants, the FDA people are there full time. I mean, they, they work there at the plant, and they probably need to to keep an eye on everything. So I guess in the case of this giant plant, maybe, you know, they lobbied to get, you know, a bathroom near where, the, I don't know. You could see how maybe it could have happened in a giant plant. But once they write the regulation, which is why I'd really rather do everything without regulation if we can first, once they write it, they never put in any kind of a waiver. If you have this tiny little meat processing plant with three or four people that work there and it's just local, they still have to have a separate bathroom for the FDA inspector. <laughs> yeah. That's that's, crazy. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's th there's, no, there's no doubt that, that regulations can obviously go bad when, when you take it to extremes. Um, by the same token, having no regulation in a, in a particular marketplace can be bad as well. And, and really, when you start to look at what the, the very, very efficient transportation system that we have has done to us economically, um, it's not pretty in a lot of cases. There's no doubt it's brought some good. But there's been a lot of, of, of loss of high-paying jobs and, and domestic manufacturing that we've just totally gotten rid of because we can move stuff so cheap out of ports. And, you know, they just ship it on in and, and uh, we distribute it. You know, I want to go but back. Again, that's a, that's, a, that's a synergy between being able to make it cheaper overseas as well. Right. I mean, and you know, why can, I, I read why can they article. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, you know, I just, okay, go ahead, Joel. Yeah, yeah, I was just making the point. The reason they're making it cheaper overseas, we all know they don't pay anybody anything. Uh, the Chinese, a lot of that stuff ends up being slave labor, and and here we are bringing it in and putting it on our cheap transportation system and shipping it all over the country. Which none of it makes any sense because essentially, at, at the end of the day, we are contributing economically to a foreign power that would like to see us go away. Hey, and 
does it make any sense? I, no. I just I just had a thought because, you know, we've talked about this driver wage thing forever, and they always go back and compare wages prior to deregulation. I wish they would stop doing that because it's just not a fair comparison for so many reasons. But let's just look at what's happened in the last couple of years. So it wasn't that long ago, five years maybe, where when we were talking about average driver wage, company driver wage, the numbers thrown around were somewhere between forty-five and 55000 And that was just a couple of years ago. That was not that long ago. When we look at manufacturing and how we've lost all those jobs and they used to pay well, and now even our manufacturing jobs don't pay that great. Now, I just saw the other day, the average truck driver wage right now is over $80,000. We have Walmart starting people at 100000 So are we still thinking, you know, five years ago? Honestly, how many jobs can you find that do not even require a high school education? Nobody asks you for your diploma. You need almost no education whatsoever, and you can go out and make eighty to 100000 I'm not sure that's a bad wage What's anymore. Your- it's not, but the, the part we're missing in that equation is you have to put the safety component into I, that. I agree with so that. So the way they want to pay us, yep. that is that is the problem. So if, if Walmart hangs us out in front of you and says, you're going to make $100,000, you just got to run 3,000 miles a week or whatever right. that number is, then it becomes problematic, very so, problematic to the to the safety of the public at large. I agree with that. All I'm saying is if we're going to argue this, we have to be careful that we don't argue that they're not getting paid enough. They are getting paid enough, but not necessarily for how much time they're away from home, how much time they're working, all those other factors. Yes, you're 100% right. If they were making $100,000 in 40 hours, I would agree with you. It's not a problem. We both know that's not happening. And we both know in order to do that, you have to take risk out on the road. You wouldn't normally take in terms of driving in bad weather, in terms of getting through a construction zone, um, driving through traffic. You're going to take every little risk that you can in order to protect that $100,000 paycheck. So it really starts to become problematic in terms of safety. Great for productivity. Absolutely no doubt about it. If a business is looking at that strictly in productivity terms, it's great. But there's more to it than just productivity and the business's bottom line. There's the public safety. And you just said it earlier. You know, we had a horrible year in terms of safety. And that will not change until we decouple pay per mile, um, you know, or change how we regulate drivers. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to throw one more thing in that I think would improve the safety faster than anything else. And I'm not sure I want to see it, but we do have to look at how bad this last report was. And there's no doubt that the pay system contributes to it. But the pay system's been around since we've had truck drivers for the most part. Hours of service have been around since 1938. The one change we could say after 2018, the ELDs, you know, forced people to actually follow the rules we were supposed to be following all those decades. And there's probably, we could just say it is a factor. We know it's causing drivers to rush more, to try to cram more time in. But I I think there's a bigger factor in that safety number, and I think it's all the technology in the cab, all the distractions. 
I don't know that I agree with that. Uh, you, you, you may have a point there. Um, I tend to use the technology in the cab to my advantage. Now, if we're talking about technology to call home or to do other things and focus on your job, yeah, you're, you're probably correct on that. I've seen guys, you know, one foot up on the dash watching a movie at 75 mile an hour going down the road. Um, I, I, I don't see it all that often, but you do see it on occasion. I, I got in a debate with somebody about commenting on a safety issue, kind of like the one that's, you know, up for debate now. And I realized as I was debating with him about safety issues and we were disagreeing, he was doing it while he was driving. He was texting and debating <laughs> on Facebook while he was driving about safety. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, yeah, there there are there are some technology um hurdles that we, we probably need to overcome. I know some people have said, let's just disable all the cell phones over a certain speed. And that probably makes sense. Um, I, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't be opposed to that technology used in the wrong way can, can be dangerous. There's no doubt about, no doubt about it. We can also solve a lot of problems with it. So it, it has to be used in the right way, but, uh, uh, definitely a lot of things that we can do. Um, I, I don't, I guess I, I, I don't think that a, a 1950s idea of limiting the speed of all the trucks yeah, across the country to the same speed makes a lot of sense. I, I, I don't think so. And I don't, I don't think that elimination of speed differentials is going to make any difference at all either. Uh, it, it's Again, it's all about the, the gap and using technology in the right way. I agree with that. How hey. is the... Uh on the speed limiter thing, I mean, the Canadians have been at it for years. You know, they've got had that hundred kilometer rule for for ages. You know, is it is it have they seen anything better safety wise there because of that? I, I haven't seen any official numbers. Uh, obviously, when you talk to the drivers, it's the worst thing since God only knows what. You know, it's just horrible, horrible, horrible. And I, you know, I don't know. I'm not up there enough to understand exactly what's going on. You look at the European example; they're very slow. But my understanding is that most European countries, it's illegal to pay by the mile. That's my understanding. I'm not sure if that's right. I'm, I'm sure we've got some guys that that will be able to answer that. But that's my understanding. They're not allowed to pay by the mile. They have to pay based on time. Hmm. So they got both. They got speed limiters and they've got time-based compensation. Time-based pay, yeah. Yeah, and my understanding is our safety record is much, much better than ours. Yeah, that's understandable. John, how much longer do we have you for? I got to roll, guys. I hate to do it. I hate to tease you with just a half an hour, but I've got cars on track at noon. Um, I finished the session. Actually, I was able to jump on there right at 11 because it rained on us briefly and we ended our session short. And I've got another one right at noon. I've got to be on track. So, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to bounce and uh, wish you guys well. And it's great to be back on. And I I will do a full show next Friday. Excellent. Sounds great. Thanks for joining us today. And we'll talk to you again next Friday. Uh, hey Joel, we've got uh, we've got a call. Yes. We had a couple, and I think they got tired of waiting for us, so they dropped. We'll uh, we'll grab some calls. So line them up eight five five nine five zero three eight three five. Today is going to be a, a quick session. We're going to go uh, an hour or 
until we run out of calls. So if you want to jump in, I would do it right now and uh, we'll get to your call. Anything goes. If you have a question, a comment, a topic, anything at all you want to talk about, throw it out. 855-950-3835. We're going to head off to Iowa. John, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for taking my call, guys. Hey, I think my question is for Joel. He was talking, uh, it's been several weeks ago, about a composite. I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly either, but Volvo was using a specific iron for their blocks. And I looked it up, but I don't remember what it was called. Um, I, some manufacturers are using um, compacted graphite. I believe compacted that's, that's graphite. what that, yeah, I think that yep. might have been what you were. Now, what is compacted graphite uh, yeah I'm, I'm not going to be able to get deep into the technical terms on compacted graphite now the volvo block is not compacted graphite i can't remember what theirs is um pack r it was like a three letter three letter term and it was longer and i can't i looked it up the day that you talked about it because i was that it really sparked, yeah. sparked an interest in me because if anything is that, what they call it cgi yes Okay, that's what that's what I was what it was called. called. Okay, and do you know if, if say that any other manufacturers say in the automotive world make blocks out of that? Yeah, I believe so. I think the use of it's getting pretty pretty widespread. It's it's uh, okay. they don't have to make things just thick, so it, it lightens up the weight on things, and it's it's still pretty strong. And, and it's more. You said I was thinking you said it was a more durable steel or iron yeah. or. Yep. composite yep okay cool so it's a cgi I'll, I'll look that back up and do some more research that was the only only question i had thank you very much all righty all right thanks for the call lines are open 855-950-3835 hey joel i was just scrolling through there was a, a discussion on truckingtribe.com about going to a tall tire and you had mentioned mm-hmm. um Yokohama's tall 24.5. Are you mm-hmm. able to get rolling resistance on a specific size? Are, are you aware if they... Uh, act- yeah, I, I can get that from their engineering department. It may not make any sense to any of us. It may, it may be a value that we're not used to seeing. Right, um, right. But it's very, it's very comparable to all the other low rolling resistance tires out there, even though it is a tall 24.5. It's the only one that I know that is pretty, pretty damn decent in terms of rolling resistance. That's, that's tall. Got it. I, I, I want to set that one aside so I've got that in a note somewhere so I remember that. And the reason I asked specifically was when I was working with Michelin, and Michelin was the only company that was testing rolling resistance and publishing the numbers, and they test everybody's tires, not just their own. But there's right. so many new tires, right. and you know, sometimes they'll be six months behind, a tire will come out, you don't know the rolling resistance. But when I was asking them, um, 
I, I absolutely know that even if we take the exact same model of tire and it's got the same rubber compound, the same tread design, same sidewall design and construction, that the size difference will change the rolling resistance. One factor we know it, it does. is the shorter yes. the sidewall, the less flex, so the less heat and the less rolling resistance. So I asked him, I said, how do I know when I'm looking at a tire what the rolling resistance is for each size because you just give one number. And their answer was, and actually it's, it's somewhat deceiving because we, it, I wish they would have been consistent and maybe tested the tire that we know has the best in that line or maybe even the opposite, give us the number of the worst. But what they did is so inconsistent that it always leaves you wondering, and, and it, it might not be a big enough difference to worry about it, but what they did was they take, if, you, if we're looking at a specific tire, the, you know, Yokohama, I think the example you gave was a 709. What they do mm -hmm. is they look at the sales of that tire model, and whichever size sells the most is the one they test. Mm -hmm. So in some tires, you gotcha. might be seeing the number for the tall 24.5 because that's the one that sells the best. But in another tire, you might be seeing their most low profile 22.5 is the one they tested. I, I wish they would have just been consistent instead. Right. And there's so much. There's so much that goes into this. This is a really kind of a moving target that's very hard to hit. Um, you know, in, inflation pr pressures play a different. We, we don't know where they tested at 130 right. pounds or where they tested at 75 pounds. Is that consistent? You know, I, I don't know for sure. What I do know is that typically when we go to the taller tire, we get a reduction in RPM at cruising speed. And depending on how your powertrain is laid out, and especially in a downsped powertrain, that reduction in parasitic drag will equal or outweigh the gain that you're talking about due to flex in the sidewall and whatnot. So typically it's a wash or very close to it. It may float one way or the other a little bit, but it's not going to be all that much. Um, provided that that tall 24-5, there's not a drastic change in the tread design or the compound. If, right. if you're right. looking at both Michelins, one's a 24-5 tall, one's a 22-5, um, if you put that small tire on a truck that's traditionally geared, you're probably going to see the benefit of the, the lower amount of sidewall flex. If we're in a gear that a uh, truck that's geared down sped in order to take advantage of low RPM, we may see a little bit more of advantage on that taller tire, further reducing the RPM provided the engine has the horsepower and torque at that lower RPM in order to keep things moving. So it, it's all over the board. Um, it's, it's, it's not as cut and dry as it used to be a few years ago where you could confidently say a low pro 22.5 is going to save you fuel. You just can't say that anymore and be completely accurate. In a lot of cases it will, but in some cases, like this guy had a downsped Mac that was 
I wouldn't say aggressively downsped. It was mildly downsped. And I know that we can further reduce the RPM in that engine and still maintain his, his shift logic and, and the gearing works with it. So in that case, that tall 24.5, you're probably going to see, see a pretty nice bump in fuel efficiency on a taller tire in that particular instance. Good stuff. All right. Calls are starting to come in. Let's grab some. We're going to go to Ontario. Oh, boy. I hope I say this right. Uh, Dilba, did I get that right? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but how are you doing? Good. What's on your mind today? Okay. I have a Volvo 2016 uh, I-shift, and uh, I don't know what is the ratio, gear ratio, and right now I am on 62 miles, and uh, RPM is 1350. Let me open up my calculator here if I can find it. I know I had it. Oh, where are we? I got so many icons on here. It's hard for me to see anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um... Maybe I don't have it anymore. I guess I don't. What it, yeah, there it is. What's your RPM again? Uh, 1350 on 62 miles. Okay, 1350 at 62. My size is uh, 11 uh, 225. Okay, so you're on the 225. That is the ratio. So I'm going to start with what's real common, a 308, and I'm going to put you in an overdrive transmission. And, you know, you're probably a 325. Oh, okay. Um, you're either, you're between 325 and 308. Um, okay. Yeah, you're right in that area. Yeah, I was wondering, like, I don't get uh, fuel mileage very good. It's about seven. Um, uh, I pull a reefer. So, never goes uh, over over seven. I was wondering if I uh, go to tall tires, my RPM will be lower, right? That will help to lower your RPM. One thing that you can do with a traditionally geared truck, and especially the Volvo, and you'll have to check to see if you have this strategy in place. Volvo came up with a system that they call Echo Torque, and essentially what it does, it puts you on a lower torque curve, and therefore horsepower curve as well, um, the majority of the time. When the engine gets into a situation where it's demanding power, say pulling a hill, it waits for five seconds and then it goes to the high horsepower, high torque curve. It can be a little bit frustrating because that power's not on demand, but with a traditional gear train like you have here, it works fairly well because your average RPM is relatively high. So running on a lower torque curve at a higher RPM um, is kind of a nice band-aid to help improve fuel efficiency. So you need to find out if your engine is an eco-torque. Um, if it's not... It, okay, so it's all right. Now, yeah. do you know what what horsepower Echo Torque you have? I don't know. I just got this truck about that six, seven months ago. Okay. All right. Uh, it, it very common would be a 500 Echo Torque, 
with a 308 and that's that's kind of sounding like what you may have um a tall tire could possibly help you i don't know that you get enough benefit out of it to cost justify the swap because right now even if you can get 1124.5 talls they are super expensive there there's just not a lot of them out there and that's what it would take to get your your rear axle ratio down so um the better option if you can is just to slow down um if, uh, if you can slow your speed down just a few mile an hour that w- is is your better option no doubt about it the other thing you can look into mm-hmm. the other thing you can look into okay okay yeah like uh, in, in Ontario, the tall tires are easy to find, and they are cheaper than uh, the U.S. If you can get a taller tire and you can come up with a tire similar to that Yokohama 709ZL, um, and they're affordable and they're plentiful, I would make that switch with that rear axle ratio, absolutely. If you need tires, I, I would do that. Um just make sure that that you're getting a a true highway 24.5 and we're not getting some funky lug tire that's gonna really smack your fuel efficiency around i actually had run a tall 24.5 during the nacv uh run on less fuel efficiency demonstration on my truck so i know that particular tire even though it's a tall 24.5 is very fuel efficient there's no doubt about it okay thank you very much sure all right. Thanks for the call. Let's head off to Nebraska this time. Mike, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Thank you for taking my call. Hey, Joel, uh, just a refresher of who I am. Um, I sent you a message. I showed you my old yellow Dodge Power Wagon with the old brownie box, and I was trying to squeeze a little bit more horsepower out. Yeah, of it. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just can't quite pull my travel trailer with that dude when I switch it into double over. It's got the overdrive and the automatic and the overdrive in the brownie box. It just mm-hmm. falls on its face. But but anyways, uh, Joel. So so Joel and Kevin, we have a big house. You know the ARI big house, and this is the problem we have is we we actually take our little sixty four Volkswagen Bug with us, and and when we go run around during the day, by the time I get back our refrigerator has killed our, my low battery voltages on. So my, my, I believe it's my refrigerator that's killing the batteries. Um, they've got mm-hmm. a big fridge. So, uh, what solar panel do you guys would suggest that I put on top of this thing that would work? Uh, before we, I am a huge fan of, go ahead. I was just going to say, before we talk about the solar panels, which I want to talk about, uh, cause that is a really good solution for this. Um, what do you have for a battery setup? Just uh, four regular batteries that came in the truck. Yeah, so yeah, that's problematic. <laughs> yeah, when you're talking about you know a, a large ARI sleeper, you you got you have more appliances, you have bigger appliances, you have lot a, a, a much larger hotel load than a typical truck. And honestly, just about every truck they produce today doesn't have enough battery. We just have not upgraded the battery technology to keep up with all of these demands we keep putting on it so one of the things i would look at and you should have room uh you've got a nice long frame if you've got a bigger sleeper um i would probably put four more deep cycle batteries just for the hotel load or even look at going with the uh 
you know, a, a start module and then dedicate as many batteries as you can fit to your hotel loads, then I, I would still do the solar. So I'll let Joel answer that question. I, I love solar and it's excellent for conditioning and charging batteries like this, but I also think you need to upgrade your battery setup. Oh, so, so yeah. my, my, my contraption that hauls a Volkswagen bug, um, it's kind of like a tow truck. It tilts and sets the bug on the ground. So it also has one one big commercial battery in it, and it is tied into the system. So I really do have five batteries in it. And, and, and we don't get the low voltage in the wintertime. We only get the low voltage in the summer, and the only thing running is just a refrigerator. So one of the things with, with batteries that we've discovered over time, um, high heat is just as bad as cold temperatures for batteries and certain trucks with fairings, they trap that heat, especially if you have a weed burner exhaust underneath and it'll heat them batteries up and, and you'll get the situation that you're describing right now. I agree with Kevin. You need a second bank of batteries um, with a sleeper that big. Right now we have four and four. We've got four in the traditional location for starting the truck and running certain items under hotel load. I've got four more that run pretty much dedicated to the air conditioner. They are all eight batteries are all the same brand deep cycle battery. And we have found that that makes a difference having all the same brand and same type because then they charge evenly. Um, and the size of your alternator is extremely important. If you just have uh, four starting batteries, most likely you're going to have a 160 amp alternator. And if you put, you know, an extra six batteries in there, uh, you're not going to be able to keep them fully charged and you're going to be going through batteries like crazy. So you're going to need at least a 320 amp alternator upgrade and that may require doing some upgrading on the cables going to the batteries. You're going to need true deep cycle batteries in both positions, same brand, same type. And then the Merlin solar, um, when you add that into the equation, uh, it really helps. And you probably have a little more room up top than what most trucks do. So you can probably get, um, more panels on up there. If you're married to the same trailer all the time and it's a van trailer, that's a good place to put some solar as well. Uh, the other option here that I really like, um, idle smart has a plug and play system that monitors battery voltage and it will automatically start the truck if needed. And you can set that for an extremely, um, low, like low voltage before it starts. And, um, when you bring all those pieces of the puzzle together, you get batteries that last a very long time. You can basically do whatever you want to do, throw a party in, in the sleeper cab and you're going to have enough power and it's, it's going to be relatively maintenance free and it's quiet and there's, you don't have the smelly exhaust emissions and noise associated with a diesel gen set. Okay. Yeah. So our, our right now our diesel gen set does start, but it, I can't seem to get it to, fully charged batteries just runs for like 10 minutes it shuts off for 10 minutes i probably need to investigate that more because it has a, we have yeah, a generator on board 
Yeah, and that that's maybe part of the problem why you're having issues with your four batteries that you have when you just constantly are surface charging and discharging and surface charging and discharging. You're getting that sulfation in the plates, and it, that just kills batteries, especially a cranking type battery that has the thin plates and it has a lot of them in there. It really creates a lot of sulfation in there, and it it uh, it really helps to to ruin the battery. They kind of get this memory going on where they think, okay, you're going to charge me for 10 minutes and I'm only going to last for 10 minutes. And uh, it's it's definitely a, a situation that you want to avoid. And that, okay. that, so, that yeah, so, can happen so. two ways. You can be charging incorrectly with your settings on that auto charge and that will kill the life of the battery. And when the life of the battery starts to die, you'll get that weird charging too. So it, it goes both ways. You might want to just load test the batteries to make sure the battery isn't the charging problem. And if the batteries are good or you put new batteries in and you still have this weird 10-minute charge cycle, then you got to look at the settings on the auto charge system. Okay. There are a couple things I try to do. Uh, so far, I've gotten pretty good life out of my batteries. This truck's almost two years old, and I got the same batteries for the for this application. Is I run the generator for like forty five minutes every night before we go to bed, and then I start it first thing as I start to wake up, and I let it run for about forty five minutes before I start the, the the truck itself to help try to ease it to uh, you know ease the batteries and be easy on the charging system of the truck. So, I don't know if that actually helps, but it seems to. A lot of it just depends on, you know, what type of battery you have. Can it accept the charge that fast? Is, is you know, your wiring and stuff big enough to, to, to handle what you're trying to do? In a lot of cases, it, the stuff's not matched up properly. You know, you have undersized wiring. The alternator's too small. You're just surface charging the batteries. And it could potentially compound the problem rather than help. So I think Kevin's right. Test the batteries. Make sure sure that they're not the cause right off the bat. If they do need replaced, definitely get true deep cycle batteries in there and then uh, go from there. Okay. So, and, and so you, your Merlin solar panels, are they just a, a like a two sided sticky tape or do you actually have to uh, shoot yeah. holes? No, this is a, a semi-rigid panel that uses a, a automotive grade adhesive, and it, it'll stick right up there, and they do not come off once they're on, so you need to be aware of that. You're not going to take these things off once they're up there. And and, and that's just, you would just run the, the wires down and tie them right into the 12-volt batteries, correct? It's just a... Well, th there, there will be a charge controller and stuff that will come with the system. When you talk to the people at Merlin, they'll set you up with everything you need in order to tie that all in correctly and make it work. Okay. Hey, and, and I'm always listening to you guys on trying to improve my fuel mileage. So we've been running 61, and I'm going 61 right now. We've That's been our new speed. And I've done something that has shot my mileage up huge is we pull a flatbed and even run it empty with the lift axle on the trailer, I can never get much more than about 7.8. So I just pulled that, that big old wing off the top. That wing was like 14 inches tall. And now <laughs> this is my very first run. 
And my thing, so my thing on the dash is nine point four, and I've never seen nine point four dash. So let me. Yeah, you had a parachute up there. Yeah, let me let me ask you, know? you something. When when you say wing, are you talking about a true wing style device, or was it like a factory installed fairing? It uh, they call it a, a well tail. Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. People have asked me about these over the years, and I've said, look, it is entirely possible that you'll put that, and they have no fairing up top. They've got a flat top. They're pulling a van, and I'll say, it's entirely possible you'll put that wing on and things will get worse. And they will, oh, no way, it's got to help. No, it doesn't have to help. And now we have another factor here. You've got a flatbed. We don't need anything up there at all. We don't want anything up there. But I've tried to tell people for years, these wing devices up there can be awful. Yeah, and if you look at the angle on it, it's about a 45-degree angle, so the wind's coming across the top, breaks up around AC, so it's got to hit this big foot-and-a-half-tall 45 degree angle be shot up and create a huge vacuum behind it but seriously this is my first run and i am getting it shows 9.4 and we've been driving about um 1100 miles and we're getting 9.4 at 61 miles an hour and i used to only be in the mid sevens that's impressive i I haven't had enough time to to uh, because because we because we use your app kevin i think i was at 6.6 on my mileage and so now I'd be interested to see after a month or two on how the mileage wow. has changed. Yeah. Yeah. And today, every tenth of a mile per gallon is big now. You know, we used to say a tenth of a mile per gallon over a year's time was about $1,000, which is pretty darn big when you think about it. Um, I'd have to go back and run the numbers. And it depends. You know, you pick an average seven, seven and a half, whatever. Uh, but my guess is at today's price, we're probably at twelve or thirteen hundred bucks a year for one tenth of a mile per gallon gain. Yeah, and my boost was always reading around ten, and now I'm reading about seven out on the level. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that was a lot of drag. That one, that one thing, I, I was shocked. Cause I was hoping, yeah, I'm gonna hopefully just get a couple tenths, and that's gonna equal. You know, make you know, but a, a big, a big improvement. So I appreciate all the tips you guys have. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Hey, Joel. I know I've told this story about a thousand times, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean everybody's heard it. Um, you ever heard the uh, the Volvo story when I was doing the my very first um, presentation for partners in business? Have I it told you that story? I don't. The, I don't think I have the bug shield. So I, I've heard bits and pieces. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was doing my first ever, you know, presentation by myself. I was, you know, I, my biggest fear in life was public speaking. So it was, it was already a mess. <laughs> I was a nervous wreck. I hadn't eaten for three days. I was so worried about it. Uh, but I, I worked really hard on this presentation. I had just um, specced a new Volvo not that long ago. So in the, place where I was talking about aerodynamics, I was comparing, you know, the Volvo against, uh, you know, kind of a middle of the road, like a, uh, uh, shoot, what was the, the Freightliner model that 
was so solid for a long FLD. Yeah, the FLD sort of kind of has some aerodynamics on it. And then, you know, I had a full blown classic and I'm pointing out all the differences and look at how much money these aerodynamics save. And I had a panel at the time I was doing the presentation, but I had a guy um, that was there to answer questions about insurance and Volvo was the sponsor. So they sent all the people on the panel They had one of their insurance people there. Um, They had an engineer there. And I'm going on and on about all these great aerodynamics. And when I got all done, the engineer raised his hand and he said, do you mind if I jump in? And I said, no, go ahead. And he said, you know, he said, you wouldn't believe how much research and development and testing goes into developing all those aerodynamics. And you spent 80 bucks and screwed it all up. (laughs) And I said, what? (laughs) And he said, do you realize? And this is when I got my first real lesson on aerodynamics. It goes way back. Uh, He said, yeah. He said that $80 bug shield you put on the front of the hood just wipes out all the work we did for aerodynamics. And I said, really? I said, why? And And he explained that the whole point is to keep the airflow against the body of the vehicle. So he he came up and he pointed out, look, it hits the bumper, it rolls up over the hood, onto the windshield, up onto the top fairing. This is where I also figured out why those wings were so bad. Because the fairing, factory fairing, ends up pointing right at the surface of the trailer because that's where you want the airflow to follow, off the fairing right onto the top of the trailer. And the wing does the opposite. It shoots it up over and creates all that turbulence. He said, you're doing the same thing with that bug shield. He said, yeah, you don't have bugs on your windshield anymore because the wind isn't hitting it the way it's supposed to. No, that, that's exactly right. It, uh, that that tail, whale tail that he was describing, that is a bug shield on steroids in terms of <laughs> what it does to your fuel efficiency. It's, 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 it's pretty awful. I'm surprised it's as much as what he was seeing. I guess in one sense I'm surprised, but then again, when you really think about what's going on, it, it, it's, it's not, I guess, that surprising. One of the aerodynamic engineers told me, just pretend your truck's a boat, and if you turn it upside down and you're pushing it through the water the things on it, uh, is it going to cause your boat to slow down? So think about that whale tail. It's just going to, you know, cup the water and it's just going to make your boat slower. And, uh, um, so that's how I always kind of look at it. I just think about, okay, if I was pushing this thing through the water as a boat, what on this truck is going to catch the water and that whale tail is probably, you probably can't get any worse than that. Yeah. It actually creates turbulence. Yeah. Yep, yep, right, yep. it definitely uh, works against you. There's no doubt about it. Yep, let's grab a final call, and then we're going to wrap this up for the week. Uh, we're going to head off to Wyoming. Brandy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Kevin. This is for Joel. Um, Joel, you were mentioning about speed limiters. I want to know, mm-hmm. what do you do when your truck is governed at 70 and another truck probably doesn't, 75 or 80? Um, it passes you. And then somewhere along the way, you pass it. They won't let you pass them, and there'll be a long line of cars trying to get around, you know. And then all of a sudden, he just seems to find his accelerator. And then you're left with all the traffic behind you looking like the bad guy. 
Well, generally what I do as a driver, I, I try to keep myself out of that situation. Um, but occasionally you'll get hung out there and I just turn my turn signal on and I start to slow down so I can get back over and then let everybody go by. Um, I, you know, you get held out there. If somebody wants to do that, just, I just don't play their game. You know what? I'll slow down, let them run away from me and pretty soon they're gone and and you don't have to worry about them anymore. So I I know the urge is to always hold it to the floor and I'm going to get around this guy and he's being a, an ass and, and whatnot. And and they are, but um, I I just don't buy into it. If a guy wants to do that. In fact, I had that happen um, in Alabama. Um, Owner operator guy was, pissed at me because I was slow. I was in the right lane, had to get over for construction and he wasn't going to let me back in. So I just turned on my turn signal, slowed down. He started to slow down too. And then he decided he was going to take, take off after he gave me the number one sign. And, and I eventually got yeah. back over, but, um, <laughs> they, they, they do that and it, it's ridiculous. It's unprofessional. It, it, it's crazy. Um, I camp out in the right lane as much as possible. And on the rare occasion that that does happen, you know what? I'm just, on the turn signal on the brakes and let them I, I don't know I, I guess maybe they feel empowered because they're faster I, I don't know what the deal is but and then I get back over and and uh, case closed <laughs> yeah um, our company started in April uh, being paid by the hour one of the things nice. that now has come with that yeah it, it's nice but there is one thing I have learned throughout my career of time management so now that everything is paid on the hour, you can't get as far as you would like. So you've got certain places you got up ahead that you want to get to, but because so many hours have been used to shippers and receivers, as well as regular traffic, you can't make it there. So you kind of got this position, so you stop your clock in order to get there, or do you collect the money? And uh, that's just one of those issues about the hourly thing. Right. And, and this is going to persist until we get some clarity in terms of a ruling, I think, from from the federal government. Once the industry, if the government were to say, OK, look, um, we've got to do things hourly. Once the entire industry recognizes that, I think, you know, we'll see some changes at shippers and receivers to accommodate the new the new rule, if it would ever come into effect. It's very difficult um, as a fleet. We struggle with this. We have tried to do hourly pay in one form or another several times, and it's blown up in our face um, uh, more than once due to, you know, several different reasons, but um, we keep working at it. I I personally like a hybrid model where half the pay is based hourly. The other half is still based on miles, and and, um, I I think that will ultimately be the right solution, but uh, until the industry learns that there is value attached to our time, we're going to struggle, even though we make the change. Like you said, there are going to be some really nice aspects to it, but there's going to be some things that we struggle with until the rest of the industry accepts that there is value attached to our time for being out on the road. Yeah. You know, Joe, one of the things that just came to mind there, um, and we lost Brandy's call. I'm not sure if she, you know, if her goals were self-defined, that's how far she wanted to get that day, or we could end up in the same place if we start paying by the hour, but the fleet starts putting these crazy production goals on. Oh, what, what do you mean you didn't get delivered today? Well, 
if that's right. the case, and then they're just forcing you to go faster again, no matter how they pay you, we, we got to stop that. Part, part of the strategy that we've laid out in, in this alpha driver's response to the speed limiter um, that we're, we're defining right now, part of this is we need to define an average dispatch speed for the industry. Now that doesn't mean, let's, let's say it's 49 and a half mile an hour. And so the government says, okay, in the industry, you cannot dispatch a truck faster than 49 and a half mile an hour average speed. That doesn't mean the driver couldn't make it there faster or slower or whatever. All that would mean is that a broker or a dispatcher could never dispatch you faster than that. And therefore the driver has a leg to stand on when he says, no, you're dispatching me faster than what we can safely do this. So it's, it's a combination of technology and some very, very targeted um, uh, regulation as far as the average dispatch speed goes. Because that's a lot of the problem, what you're talking about, is these unrealistic expectation the company's going to set on the driver, and then it puts that driver in a position again. Do I do this safe? Or do I do it profitably for me? And yeah. the driver should never be in that position. And, and that's the problem. Yep, I agree. Hey, we're, uh, we're screening one more call. We're going to take that before we wrap it up today. Matt did the math for us. Um, he's using the numbers $5.50 a gallon for fuel, which is pretty accurate right now. Uh, seven miles to the gallon and 120,000 miles a year. That, that's a pretty good average to calculate from. One mile per hour or one-tenth of a mile per gallon. That, that's a pretty good calculation we've used forever that if you slow down one mile per hour, you should pick up one-tenth of a mile per gallon. It works out to over $1,300 a year in fuel, one mile per hour. So slowing down five miles per hour almost puts $7,000 back to the bottom line at today's fuel price. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that it, it's amazing when you start to run these numbers and, and you know, the, the number that I shot you the other day, when we talked about a 37% reduction in maintenance cost, when you slow a truck down that has an emissions engine, um, you know, that seems mind blowing, but it's absolutely true. In fact, that number is conservative in my opinion, because when we get a, an emissions truck that has traditional gearing that's running at 70 five mile an hour, that piston speed gets crazy. They start to have all kinds of issues. You take that truck and you slow it down to 55 or 60, and it's probably going to be more than a 37% reduction in maintenance. We've all heard the stories. My truck's been in the shop a hundred days. I'm waiting on parts. We we know how much that costs. So it's, it's, you think about that number and you think, Oh, that just can't be it. That is absolutely accurate. In fact, I think that's very conservative. High speed has a very high price with today's emissions engines. That that's If they're not geared right. If we gear them right, we're okay. Right. That That's an incredible number. And I think what we're about to see, we've, we've been through a long period, a decade plus where honestly, you, if you weren't making money with the truck, you were really doing something wrong. I mean, it, we had such good rates and low fuel prices and it, and I, I, I'm not a huge fan of really low fuel prices. I do like that fuel surcharge because that rewards the really efficient, you know, trucks even more. 
but what's about to happen, I think, is during that time, you could run fast and make money. You could run slow and make money. You didn't have to be efficient. You didn't have to. I mean, almost everybody survived at least. They kept their truck. They were making money. They were doing okay. We're, based on all the numbers we're seeing, it's going to be a 180 degree difference from that. If you're not watching all of these things, you could be out of business quickly in the environment we're heading into. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And this, this is part of what drives that, you know, the market's ups and downs. This, this won't be the first time unprepared people have been washed out of the market. The difference today is the technology is evolving so rapidly that you really got to do your homework so that you understand what you're getting into. And, um, I think you're right. The economic conditions were such that pretty much you could have drove a dump truck in reverse backwards delivering freight and you still <laughs> would have made money. I, I don't yeah. think there's any doubt about it. Yeah. Um, you're exactly right. This is going to completely turn around. And if you don't have a fairly comprehensive understanding of what's going on, uh, you're going to be hard pressed to make it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the rates dropping as fast as they are. Let's, uh, let's grab this final call. We're going to go to Pennsylvania this time. Pat, welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon, guys. Joel um, and Kevin, I think. Last weekend, I made a post um, about your conversations last week about respecting the time of a driver and paying them for their time and some of the challenges that come with it. Uh, I said I would call in today to discuss um, what I have done. We're a small company, three, three to be four trucks, so I've got myself plus two drivers. And you probably don't remember, Kevin, but when I hired my first guy in the, call, in the fall, I did call your show to discuss this exact topic, how I wanted to, in an industry where everyone's paid by the load, a percentage of the load, so they say, I wanted to respect driver's time. Um, but I also understand, like, it's chucking. Margins are tight. If you pay a guy, like, a normal per hour time, per hour rate with overtime, it's challenging. You pay a guy 30 bucks an hour, um, any delay that we're not compensated for as a company you know, it's eating you up at 45 an hour. You know, my guy stopped for 20 minutes a day to, to get coffee. I don't want to nickel and dime them. I don't take it out of their pay. But at 45 bucks an hour, it adds up to be like close to five grand a year, you know, to get coffee. So that's a challenge. Um, so my answer to it, if you guys are interested, uh, you know, a layout, it's pretty simple. You know, what I've done, and I also have a sample pay settlement I could post to the chive so you guys could take a look at it and, and make sense of it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So, so I wanted it to be mostly by the hour, um, to respect the time, you know, so it was significant. So what I have done is there's three parts to their, um, pay package and they all have a very distinct advantage to the company and the driver. So the first one is from the time they leave our yard to the time they get back, they're on the clock at $20 an hour. So the whole time they're working, whatever happens, they get 20 bucks an hour. Um, that's very simple and straightforward. The next part is we actually came up with a profit sharing bonus. Um, and I know that can sound kind of daunting and complicated, but we simplified it to make it very transparent and very simple to understand. Um, we have a set long-term average for our cost per mile to operate. Maintenance and tires, we just have set. You know, it's not like if you blow a tire, it's coming out of your paycheck. I just use long-term averages multiply that by how many miles they ran that week, you know, that's, that's their mileage expense. 
but it's it's just to come up with the profit for their 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 profit share bonus. So we have the the per mileage cost tolls is just straight up their actual tolls come off their easy pass transponders deducted, and then their hourly wages are deducted as well. Um, and then as far as fuel costs, we use the Pad One B, the regional average, so it's transparent, so they can look at it, see exactly what it is, and then we just we divide it by our fleet wide um, miles per gallon. So I show them their exact revenue, what they generated for the week, um, then deduct those expenses from it on a on a spreadsheet in a, in a settlement. It's so it's the amount of miles they driven, my multiplied by the mileage cost, which is tires, maintenance, and fuel and their wages, and then they get 10% of what that is. So they get $20 um, an hour. They then get 10% of their of the gross profit that they generated. No fixed expenses. That has nothing to do with the driver, um, so that is not going to be part of their pay package. So it's just their actual operating profit of what they generated and, and what they um, built. The reason I did it that way, profit over revenue, which would be a little simpler, um, is it just wasn't consistent in what we do. Our highest paying load, what we do regularly, is actually our lowest profit per hour load we have. So if I'm giving guys a max bonus on our worst financial run, it, it's counterproductive. It, it's going to eat really eat into the margins on our worst, worst run to begin with. We could have really short runs um, where the revenue is low, but our actual profit per hour, what we're making per hour with our trucks, is actually the highest. And so I didn't want to penalize them by giving them a low bonus when they're actually making the company more. So I tried to simplify that gross profit formula and be transparent with it as much as possible. And then each week, and I'm going to post this in a couple of minutes, each week on their settlement, it's very clearly laid out how, what their revenue is, what their expenses were, where it came from. And then that final number, they get 10% added to their payroll. And then the third part, um, the advantage to that, to be honest with you, is when we do three runs a day, that third run is worth so much more to us because it's usually a backhaul, but it does take an 11-hour 11, 11 day and make it a 14, and they, because it's worth more, because it's cutting the miles and half for the revenue, they're paid more for that. It almost function, functions as overtime because they're getting a share of that extra gross profit that's generated on such a high efficiency. So I wanted to encourage them to want to work those long days, but not force it down their throat. Um, 14 hours every day. That's just not something I believe in when we don't have to. So I wanted to encourage them with a the pay structure that makes them want to do it. Before you, and then be, quickly, yeah, that, that, before you go to the third part, let me just jump in with one comment. When I had trucks running sure. local and I had drivers, I had a similar setup because local really the more productive and I don't want to, you know, push the productivity thing too hard, but on a local operation, it really is important. You take two drivers that run over the road and they can be wildly different in their habits and how they work. And the difference in how many miles they get in a day is not going to be that big. Because for the most part, the majority of their time is spent on the highway at highway speeds. Not a big difference. You get somebody that's running around doing right. 20 stops a day locally, which is what I had. And there is a huge difference between somebody who's, who manages their time well and somebody who doesn't. So I like the idea of a bonus based on productivity but I, in my opinion, expenses would never be a part of it. 
not any expense because the expense is too far out of the driver's control. So many things affect fuel economy. So many things affect maintenance that's out of their control that I like productivity bonuses to be based on gross only, no deductions whatsoever. Okay, so I completely agree with every, you know, every, every, um, everything you just said, you know, everything that's behind it. I agree. I, I want, I only want their pay to be influenced by what they can control. That's why when we do the expenses, it isn't, if you, you know, if your turbocharger goes down, you got to replace it. That never, ever, not a penny of it gets passed through to their paycheck. That's why I use a very simple long-term average cost per mile. The actual expenses that, you know, something goes wrong with their truck, whatever it might be, they do not eat a penny when that happens. It's literally just a very honest long-term average cost per mile. And then same with the fuel, like our, our fleet, so let me, is 5.7 miles per gallon. And I understand we, that. I just use six and it's, yeah. And I understand again, you're trying to have some encouragement for the driver to control some cost. Otherwise, there's no reason to have that expense calculation in there. And and honestly, even though it's a long-term sure. average, you know, I can go in profit gauges right now and I can find trucks that cost 12 cents a mile to operate long-term and I can find trucks that cost 24 cents a mile to operate long-term. Double. That's not the driver's issue or fault. I, I if you're If you're really trying to just base it on productivity – change the calculation so it's only based on gross. But I, I understand what you're saying. The, the issue with it is it, it's so inconsistent. The gross, I could have a truck gross $7,000 and be more profitable than a truck that grows 9200 And it's, to me, it's, it no. just doesn't, because that's what I wanted to do because it's, e- it's easier from every standpoint. However, it's honestly more consistent to the driver to do it this way. Like, and I know, I know you're saying one truck could be 12, one could be, you know, 25, et cetera. Ultimately, Kevin, the, you know, even if you have a 10 cents per mile difference, you know, it's only going to have to be about a cent per mile on them. I mean, these guys, when you do it per mile, they're making like a dollar 20 miles at the local. So it doesn't even come out to be. Okay. To me, it's just because of the way our business is set up to be, and the way we run the revenue, the top line gross revenue, just it doesn't tell enough of the story for it to, to, to translate to their pay. They can make more on low revenue runs. And that's kind of what I'm trying to encourage because those low revenue runs are usually our, our third run of the day. It's, uh, I, I agree okay. with you. And I understand in, in a way it's more simple, but I just, by making everything long-term and it's just a simple formula and it, it holds them accountable to their expenses, but without it actually varying based on decisions they don't make. I mean, it's just yeah. a set formula. We let it ride. I'm not changing it when something goes out, changing it every month because our mate or what up. Honestly, I, I just keep it the same. Our actual fuel economy is 5.7, but I just calculated it at six miles per gallon because it's simple. It's consistent. I'm not trying to make it complicated, but I agree with you. I agree with you. We just have some unique situations where I, I, really did analyze the numbers around scenarios. And I, I just think it works out better for everybody this way. Yeah. After hearing all that, it, you've certainly put a lot of thought into it and you've tailored it to your specific operation. So uh, you probably do have it right yeah. then. What's the third part? The, so, so the third part, and this comes into everything, fuel economy, safety, it's our safety bonus. Um, the safety bonus is 
it's simple. It's very it's structured so that if you don't have any incidents, you, know, you don't tear any bumpers, no accidents, no tickets. That's the, the simple part. But also, if you keep your speeding uh, below 5% for the week, you get $100 a week added to your paycheck. So that has multiple advantages. So one, I safety is everything. I mean, honestly, I don't want to go to sleep at night. You know, not when someone got hurt. So I just I really try to encourage, talk to them about following distance. Our, our cameras have all of that um, to show you what the following distance is and constantly communicate the importance of safety with them. But by encouraging them financially, speeding is a big, you know, leading statistic for accidents. And so from the, just the standpoint of wanting people to be safe, it has that value. But also, you know, as a second year, third year company, insurance is a major factor. A simple fender bender is going to really, really eat into our bottom line because of insurance renewals. So by encouraging them to, to be safe, avoid incidents, it saves us on insurance and repairs and everything long term. The other side is many of our roads that we run have a 55 mile per hour speed limit. 55 or 45, a lot of our roads are those speeds. So when they're abiding by their speed limit, they're getting max fuel economy running 55 miles per hour. So we kind of, it helps with our, our fuel expense by, just by default, they're keeping their trucks at, you know, 55 miles an hour much of the day. And again, they, they meet that criteria, 5% feeding for the week or less, no incidents, they get $100 added to their paycheck. That seems like a good program. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, you've certainly put a lot yeah, of thought that's, that's into it. One of the beautiful things about smaller fleets is, is you, you can actually do this type of thing. You can really drill down and you can get very, very specific on things. Um, obviously, as you grow, these types of, of pay structures, they start to become problematic. They're very difficult to administer in the back office. But um, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a great thing that you've laid out here for a small fleet thinking outside the box and, and really respecting the driver's time. So, yeah, that's a, a, a well-thought-out pay strategy, I think. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. We get a lot of delays, you know, and it's like every other company, their guys aren't getting paid for it unless they're there for two hours and they're only getting paid the surplus of two hours. And, it, you know, as a company job for a couple of years, it's just the principle of it aided me. It just, it just bothered me. And it's like I wanted to make sure these guys are paid for everything that happens and, you know, and, and make it, you know, beneficial for both of us. And the, the last little advantage of it is I'm a numbers freak. Um, but, and by you're, you're right, Joel, I do think ahead and I'm like, guys, you get more trucks. This is going to get hard to log everything. I've got it pretty standardized. I do the best, you know, simple and just, you know, pull reports from our CPS and, you know, software and plug them in, but it, it will be a challenge, you know, if we continue to grow. Um, but it does, it holds me accountable to my numbers every single week. I take these numbers from the payroll settlement, transfer them into their revenue and performance metric sheets. And I am forced to pull their mileages, to pull their tolls, to pull their hours, to pull their revenue. I'm forced to do all of it. And the spreadsheets that we have built are extremely detailed. You, know, you put in those five or six variables each week, and I've got everything down to the hour, everything down to the mile. And then I have sheets to aggregate across our fleet. We have all of our fleet-wide averages for everything. I mean, like, like with 70 lines of data for it. And by doing this, like I would do it anyway. But the fact that I have to do it every week because, you know, one of the number one priorities is saying these guys, it holds me accountable to make sure our numbers are always accurate and I'm always pulling the data I need to, to make that, that, that information. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think a, a good strategy for a smaller fleet, no doubt, definitely as you scale up, it, it becomes more challenging, but you definitely have the right idea and staying on top of your data and, and linking it to the pay like that, I think is a really good idea. Cool. I mean, I that's all I got for you. Yeah. I appreciate the time. And it's, I, I, I like the fact that you're talking about this every week. It, it, it's tough in an industry where, you know, the, the companies aren't compensated for time all the time, but starting the conversation coming up with ways and everything it's i think it's important i just think it's respect for for people and their time excellent i agree i agree i absolutely agree all right before we wrap this up joel i want to throw out one weird fact of the week um okay did you ever hear the book or maybe even read it soylent green no so you should go read this book because it's kind of funny now. It's been around for a couple of decades. I forget when I read it. And I'd have to go back and refresh my memory. But it's one of those, the book is set in the future. It's the dystopian. The government controls everything. And the food is called Soylent Green. And what the people, if I remember this right, the people in the book don't realize that the food comes from all the people that have died. <laughs> it's, it, it's really the, the, wonderful. <laughs> I know the book's kind of out there, but here's the funny thing. There is this company now that makes these plant protein drinks and the name of the, the Soylent. Yes, I, I've seen that. Soylent. What the yeah. hell are they thinking? Who would <laughs> buy this? <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. How bizarre. Uh, well, yeah. yeah. I definitely have to have to read that book. I, I've been, I've listened to the art of war like four times, just watching what the Russians are doing over there. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell they've got going on. And, and I, I listen to the art of war and I'm just, you know, trying to think what's their strategy. What are they doing? And nothing makes sense. And, and yeah. so I, I just have kind of given up on it and figured it is what it is at this point. You're, so I'm looking for something else to listen to. <laughs> you are right. Well, Soylent Green, try that one. But here's another one that'll be fun for you. You're li- you've been listening mm-hmm. to the art of war. Now you should go listen to mm-hmm. the war of art. All right, I'll do that. I'll look it up. One of my favorite books. I'll look Larry, it up. It, it was the first book Larry Winget ever recommended. Uh, the first time I ever had him on my show. At the end, I said, "Hey, what should I be reading right now?" And he said, um, "The War of Art." And I said. Oh, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. I said, I, I've already read The Art of War. And he said, no, it's the opposite. He said, it's the, which was an awesome title. And when you read it, it the title really makes sense. But uh, re- really, really good message. And I, I think it'll resonate with you with all the work you're doing around alpha drivers right now. And I, I think you'll actually get quite a bit out of that book. Yeah, definitely do it. Uh, you got all the stuff that uh, we sent over to you. Did you Did you yes. see the stuff that we sent? Yep, I've got it. Okay, so, all right. Uh, just want to make sure that it, yep. it came through. I'm going to go through awesome. that this weekend. Yeah, let me know what you think and give me some feedback. And, and you know, we can start to, uh, you know, maybe put a little more shape on this thing and, and uh, um, 
I'm hoping we can get this out there and, and really do something with it. I would love to see a change in the industry while I'm still active in the industry, just because I think it's so long overdue and uh, it needs to happen. And um, I think we're in a position that we're not beholden to anybody. We're not, a, not necessarily a special interest group like OIDA and the ATA that they're just looking at, you know, doing things that benefit their members and their members only. I want this to impact the entire industry and, and be good for everybody involved. I agree. I like it. Um, thanks for getting it started. And I, I, uh, I'm excited to be a part of it. All right. We're going to wrap this up. We will uh, see you on Monday and we'll do this again next Friday. So have a great weekend. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always. Do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford.